0: This recording is a production of Faith Builders Resource Group. This recording was made at Reach 2017, held on March 23 and 24, 2017 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I'd like to pray. Lord, thank you for our brother, and thank you for the, the years of, of service that you've given him. And we thank you that he's here with us this evening. And we're just standing with him as as a congregation. And we're wanting you to strengthen him. We're wanting you to speak through him to us. And so would you give him rest and give him a a sense of freedom to just speak your heart and your words to us this evening. We pray this in Christ. Amen. When I was about... Three or four years old, I recall being out in the shop of my father with my grandfather, and I was pushing in to try to see what grandpa was doing, and he made this comment. He said, get out of the road, and being young enough, I had thought, that, I don't know what he means by that. The road's out on the other side of the yard, and I'm not anywhere close to the road, But what he was trying to say was, get out of my way. You're an obstruction. You're in the way. I must admit a significant sense of inadequacy in sharing this evening. My credentials are woefully lacking. There's numbers of churches in Russia whose members have said that they question the qualifications of any leader who has not been in prison. I don't have those qualifications. I don't have those credentials. In 1949, four young men moved into the remote community that I grew up in in northern Minnesota and resided with a friendly resort owner and we're allowed to stay in one of his summer cabins throughout that winter in exchange for some labor that they would provide for the resort owner. Now, summer cabins are not built for Minnesota winters. And so my father and the, the three men with him had quite an experience that winter. For their water supply, they had a hand pump. And they had to take that out in the morning, screw it onto the top of the well, dump the remaining water from the previous day in to prime it, pump out the water for that day plus priming the next day, screw the thing off, take it back inside. Many nights when they'd wake up in the morning, the water was frozen over the top in their their, um, house. But because of the influence of these four young men, that resort owner told me years later that they had spoiled his planned enterprise. He had been planning to build a wine distillery in the basement of his lodge, and because of these young men, they got in the way of evil. Their lives and testimony created an obstruction. Tonight, I'd like to talk about getting in the way of evil. As different ones have already said throughout the last two days, they've quoted Jesus when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is not, as has been mentioned, offensive. Uh, this is not defensive action. This is offensive action. The church is to take the offense in confronting the evil. The church is in possession of the ball. The Apostle Andrew was brought before the governor, Aegis because he kept preaching this controversial message about Jesus and the cross, according to the martyr's mirror. The governor told Andrew, if you don't stop preaching this message about Jesus and his cross, I'm going to crucify you on one too. Undaunted, Andrew said, Sir, I would not have preached about the glory of the cross if I was not willing to die on one. He immediately was taken and tied to a splintery wooden beams of a cross to die a slow, painful death over the next three days. But as he hung there in excruciating pain, he preached the gospel until he finally went to his home. Much of us in the Western church have deceived ourselves into thinking that we live in a very unique dispensation, or maybe a very unique geography, where Jesus' words don't quite apply to us. Even as contemporary Anabaptists, we've passed off this very clear and undisputable statements as not applying to us. We agree that what He said was true in the early church and to some degree, in the Middle Ages, and then again in the Reformation. But, praise God, they're not happening today for us. They haven't been for my parents and they haven't been for my grandparents. And beyond that, well, that's too far back to worry about. We know some things might be looming on the horizon in the future, but I guess I'll face those problems when they come. As for now, weather's fine. Honey, let's go check out that land I bought. Sam, why don't we go four-wheeling this evening? Darling, our wedding date is just around the corner. You know, it was property, it was oxen, and it was weddings that kept the friends of the groom from attending the banquet. Jesus said, If the world hate you, you know... That it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul repeated that warning. In 2 Timothy, he said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We smugly say, Thank you, Lord, that I didn't live in that traumatic time of history. Was Jesus saying we might suffer persecution or some will suffer persecution or if you're a carnal Christian, you'll suffer persecution? Or does my lack of persecution say something about, not about my dispensation, but maybe about my disposition, about how calm and unconfrontive and passive I am when I'm disagreed with? I keep safe from engaging with the enemies of truth and morality. Do I really get in the way of evil? I have lived too much of my life, brothers and sisters, denying this truth and hoping it wasn't true. I grieve over the denial. what that denial has cost in terms of sweet intimacy with Christ. Many of us have never graduated from the first grade of the school of hard knocks. And until we're ready to die with Christ, literally we're not prepared to live with him either. In August of 1527, 60 young men in their 20s and 30s met at the Augsburg Anabaptist Church where between 700 and 1,000 members gathered weekly. These 60 men gathered to talk about how to get in the way of evil, to clearly identify truth. The church of their day had been locked into an adulterous relationship with the government for 100 or 1,200 years And these men huddled together for five days and petitioned off the different surrounding countries to assign groups of two or three men to evangelize the people. They were so diligent and persuasive that many congregations were formed within hours of their preaching. They were on the run. The authorities, both ecclesiastical and governmental, were chasing them. They were so effective that they were actually accused of having flasks of potion that they dumped on the crowd and it came under a spell so that they'd become Christians. The marathon was, being, that it was that they were being chased. Some never reached their assigned area of ministry due to being arrested and martyred. Every month, new edicts and mandates went out for their arrest. Finally, the authorities armed 400 horsemen and rounded up any Anabaptists they could find. If they did not recant, they were burned without trial. If they did recant, they were beheaded. If there were women, they were drowned. Of the 60 men that met in that martyr's synod, only three survived five years later. Hans Hasselbacher Got in the way of evil. Authorities came to Hans on Friday evening and informed him that he must renounce his faith. This elderly man did not seek compromise to save himself, so the preachers came again on Saturday with even more harsh threats. Hans continued to confront evil by remaining true to Scripture. On Sunday, God gave Hans a vision that when that he would be executed, but he should not fear because the Lord would remain on his side. He was also assured in that vision that three miracles would happen. First of all, his severed head would laugh. Secondly, the sun would turn red. And thirdly, the village well would also turn blood red. When all three of those miracles happen. At the time of Hans' death, it caused the authorities to end the execution of Anabaptists. Hans got in the way of evil, of killing Christians. His victory has been preserved by song in the martyr's mirror, a song that has 32 verses. We ought to learn it sometime. Franklin Nottel says in his book, The Anabaptist Vision of the Church, I quote, Persecution only changed them from wandering pilgrims to missionary, event, missionary strategists, ready when the time came to be martyrs also. End of quote. We need to confess that most of us would be more identified as wandering pilgrims rather than missionary strategists. Those 57 martyrs, along with others, freed the church from the Jezebel prostitution that her relationship had been with the government for all those years. They took the baptism of Christ back to intelligent adult decision rather than the imposed baptism of infants who had no ability to choose Christ. The movement of these young men is a historical backdrop for the free church and all adult baptism in much of the Western evangelicalism. But it, became, but it came because they got in the way of evil. When Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 9, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whoever shall lose his life for my sake, the same shall find it. I ask us, brothers and sisters, is he only speaking metaphorically? A metaphor is a figure of speech in which a term or a phrase is applied to something to which it's not literally applicable in order to suggest a resemblance. Is Jesus only a metaphoric king? Was his dying only metaphoric? Oh, but we say, but we don't really need to die. That, that's too radical. That's hyper-spiritual. That's, that's a martyr's complex. Are we becoming like the Muslim suicide bombers? We need men and women. We need young people. We need many like one youth who said, I'm willing to go to the Middle East and never return. Did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego metaphorically decide not to bow down? Did they stand up in their hearts while they knelt with their bodies? No, they stood out like in that multitude like a sore thumb. Because they got in the way of evil. Oh, I love their response to the king. O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God is, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of thy hand, O God or O King. But if not, be it known unto thee, O King, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship thy golden image, which thou hast set up. It was a reality. They didn't just keep to themselves in the secret parts of their hearts or even in the confines of their cultural background. They got in the way of evil. Daniel went publicly against what was politically correct. He didn't move back from the window. He didn't draw the shades. He didn't even go back to a prayer closet somewhere when the godless president's successfully passed their legislation about prayer time, he got in the way of evil. He went in the lion's den. It didn't matter if he slept on the lions or in them. He got in the way of evil. You know, it's been easy for me to quote John 12, verse 32, as grounds for evangelism and giving my testimony. But is there a deeper calling here? When Christ said, And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. What does that verse imply? What was that lifting up? That lifting up was his death. It was the cross. It was laying down his physical life, not a metaphoric life. John's inspired commentary Of Jesus' statement was, this he said, signifying what death he should die. We're talking about how Jesus got in the way of evil. We're not talking about handing out tracts or singing in the park. We're talking about getting in the way of evil. Jesus made a full body attack against the cross and he died. We must wake up to the fact that we're never going to phase Western culture for the kingdom of Christ through our volleyball tournaments and through our Christian cruise trips and through our short-term mission trips and our choral programs and our Amish-made furniture and even our church services, all of which may have a very important part. But they're not going to be our means of getting in the way of evil. We will never impact the infidels of this world with those methods, nor the modernists, nor the postmodernists, nor the traditionalists, nor the Democrats, nor the Republicans, nor the gay community, nor the militaristic patriots. We're going to have to jump into the fray and tangle with the enemy. Persecution is not a toothache or a disgruntled neighbor. Persecution is getting scratched, clawed, bitten, and maybe eaten. By the enemy. In October of 2014, a young boy slipped and fell into the tiger enclosure of the New Delhi Zoo. The surprised tiger watched the boy and played with him for about 15 minutes. Bystanders stood on top, yelling, throwing stones, videoing, but no one went to his rescue. He was carried off and killed by the big cat. If that was your son, fathers, what would you have done? Would you have videoed the event, thrown a few stones? Or would you have yelled and screamed for 15 minutes? Or would you have tried to get some people with you and jumped in to face that cat with him? How would you have gotten in the way of evil? Dismissing ourselves from the responsibility was what Adam did right there at the beginning. When he was faced with a situation that mattered the most to God, to Eve, to his children, to all mankind, he stood there watching as the serpent spoke to his wife. He watched evil progress without intervening. Esther stood in the gap. For such a time as this, she did not fade into the woodwork of her royalty and do nothing. She said, I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. You know, the Bible is full of accounts of people who got in the way of sin. Last winter, I made my third visit to the memorial for Flight 93 with my wife, Barb. I am somewhat traumatized by the question what I would have done if I had been on that flight. When I ask people what they would have done, most cannot give me a decisive answer. Somehow, we expect that we will have a clear rhema from the Lord at that instant and know exactly what to do. I wonder, what would my response have been like? Would it be a response like Ted Beamer, let's roll? Or would it have been a response like Dirk Willems, go back? In a moment's notice, brothers and sisters, Dirk Willems switched from saving his life to saving his thief catcher's life. In a moment's notice. Can that be known before I board flight 93? Are we clueless or have we made plans months ahead of time, years ahead of time, like those Muslims did? How long did they anticipate and strategize their deaths while I passively avoided the question? 20-some young men knew what their mission was when they got up that morning on September 11th, 2001. They were to die so that thousands would die. Can we recruit 20 young men from a group like this that are willing to die so people can live? Will we get in the way of evil? I'm not satisfied with my haunting confusion As to what I would have done if I were on Flight 93. What weapons would I have used? Anger with a plastic knife or love with a cup of cold water? A scream of fear or a smile of home going? Would I assemble a resistance team or a prayer team? Was God big enough to save without carnal weapons? Will we receive Jesus' instructive message to his disciples when the Samaritans would not receive him. The disciples inquired, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them like Elias did? Jesus responded by saying, ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You know, the foundational difference between the early Christians and their enemies is that the early Christians did not believe they needed to survive. They didn't expect to survive. In our missions conferences, we declare, in, like in Luke chapter 10, the harvest is truly great, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of harvest, that he would send forth labors into the harvest. But do we also declare The rest of that verse. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to try to figure out if that's a survival course or not. This is more like a course in suicide. A lamb among wolves. The odds that you're going to make it are really bad. You might outrun them, but probably not. No biblical Anabaptist doctrine guarantees our safety when the wolves of godlessness surround us. The ultimate display of total injustice of this world system is born out of the scandal of Christ's own trial. Though the system couldn't find any fault in him, and the scripture says at all, The justice system found him innocent, but they still scourged him. They whipped him. They made a crown of thorns and beat it upon his head. They smote him with their hands. These actions blasphemously rage against justice. Don't depend, brothers and sisters, on a speck of fairness in the system that will persecute you. Don't expect justice when you get in the way of evil. When Julius Kalamfer was on trial and threatened with death for his faith in 1561, he said, and I quote, This is nothing strange to me, for it was told me in the beginning of my conversion. Julius had a plan for his death long before that trial date. He, like the 9 11 Terrorists had yielded his life to a purpose greater than life. But that's where the similarity ended. The terrorists died to kill. Julius died to save. He got in the way of evil. He knew that being lifted up would draw other men to Christ. He knew that he would need to stand in the way of evil. Paul challenges us in Philippians Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion of man, he humbled himself and what? Became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. About 400 A.D., a young man by the name of Telemachus, who had been an unruly young man, sucked into worldly pleasures and so forth in his youth, became a believer. He became involved in mission work in a rather remote monastery at that time and felt like he should, be, he should go back to Rome. And so as he headed back to Rome, getting close to the city, he noticed there was lots of people moving down the, the street toward the stadium, a large crowd of people were going there. The Romans had just defeated the Goths, and there was to be a big celebration. The gladiators were ready to perform out there in front of, of the stadium. And so as they saluted the empire, the carnage began. And immediately with this brawl, the blood and the screaming and the yelling of all the, the people, Telemachus was watching this, and as he saw what was happening, he was just stunned with the infamy of what was taking place. And so he began to yell, in the name of Jesus, stop! In the name of Jesus, stop! But there was so much noise and so much yelling that he could not be heard. So he ran down the stairway, jumped over the wall down into where the gladiators were, and began yelling to the Gladiators, in the name of Jesus, stop. In the name of Jesus, stop. The surprised gladiators halted for just a little bit. And then as the crowd began to yell at the interruption, and they were frustrated this thing was being stopped, and they began to yell that they would remove the the interruption, kill the interruption, and so... Telemachus was right between two gladiators yelling, in the name of Jesus, stop. In the name of Jesus, stop. One of the gladiators brought his sword down into the heart in the middle of the chest of Telemachus who fell on the floor of the stadium and died. History tells us that immediately the roaring of the crowd Ceased. It became intensely quiet. People began to leave. Pretty soon the emperor left. The gladiators left. In a very short time, all that was left in the stadium was the dead body of Telemachus. Within an hour of his death, the emperor issued an edict saying no more war games in the stadium. All because one man got in the way of evil. What are the games that you and I need to jump into where we cry out, in the name of Jesus, stop! Stop divorcing! Stop these school shootings! Stop these abortions, stop these church splits, stop pornography, stop sodomite marriages. Don't worry about political correctness, brothers and sisters. Get in the arena and yell, stop, in the name of Jesus. We must be willing to step between the abused and the abuser, in the name of Jesus, stop. Our calling is not a passive observance of sin, it's active confrontation with sin Stepping in its way, crashing the gates of hell. We do not step between the abused and the abuser with carnal weapons. We step between with weapons that are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We step between the seeker and the lie. We step between the youth and the hedonist. We step between the unborn and the abortionist. We step between the brotherhood and the postmodern. We step between the sodomite and his lifestyle. We must get in the face of evil with uncarnal weapons. Someone said that we're going to lose our young people to either apostasy or martyrdom. Our young people have a God-given passion that's going to be exercised some way. Will their feet run to preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things until the thief-catchers capture them? Or will they hug a pink skin and run for the end zone? Young people are infused with God, by God, for adventure. No one enjoys passivity. Will that drive take them to rescue the perishing in Greece and Iraq and Jordan and Syria? And maybe in a pro-life clinic downtown? Young people, let that volleyball bounce off the court while you wrap your life around something that's eternal. Will we dunk basketballs or converts? Incidentally, that's not a statement on mode. Young men, it's senseless to put yourself in danger's way to drive recklessly on your motorcycle, your four-wheeler, your snowmobile, your car, but never have the courage to recklessly confront the evils of Western culture. It is a grievous shame that we can argue over Facebook about the morality of relating to the gay community or of voting for Trump or Clinton or the ethics of transgender bathrooms if we remain unengaged with a neighbor who's aborting their baby or a fellow employee who's cheating on his wife or a sports fanatic that doesn't have time for brotherhood. Young women, every... Time you appear in public with your elegant, modest, feminine dress, you are graphically getting in the way of evil. You are called upon to demonstrate the beauty of holiness in this sick, decadent, immoral, pornographic Western society that allows Hollywood to determine the undress of this sensual culture. You're getting in the way of evil. As American Christians, we're willing to get in the way. If we were willing to get in the way of evil, I think our, country, our country's jails would probably be fairly populated with Christians. Instead, we have a few brothers, Brother Ken and Brother Timo, that are there. How many of us should be there as well? Jesus came to die so that we might live. He sends us to die so that others might live. This was to be a repeated cycle throughout the New Testament dispensation. Jesus said, these things have I spoken unto you that your joy might be might be, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. You know, we blissfully sing, this is my commandment that we love one another, that your joy may be full. But we ignore the next verse. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his brother." Joy is directly linked to our laying down of our lives. One of the most joy-filled books I've read in my life is The Martyr's Mirror. Young people, brothers and sisters, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. We are told that we shall be put out of synagogues. Yea, in the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he is doing God a service. We live in a time like that again, literally. The baptism of blood is not metaphoric. It's a commitment level of everyone entering into the armed forces of Christ's kingdom. It is a resolution of anyone who wants to get in the way of evil. Moses, in Hebrews, is recorded, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the approach of Christ's greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Is this a message in morbidity? Is this only enhancing a martyr's complex? I say with Scrooge, bah humbug. No, death has lost its victory, brothers and sisters. Death is a doorway. Death is a passageway from this decadent, sick, broken, chaotic world to a beautiful, healthy, eternal exhilaration in heaven. Paul says, for me to die is gain, to live is Christ and to die is gain. One completely stunning reality that God wants us to keep in the forefront of our minds as we face the crippling struggles of a decadent earth is our upcoming wedding. It will be a day of beauty, a day of color, of fellowship, of food, of laughter, of anticipation, of discovery, of connectedness, and celebration, and intimacy. Romans chapter 8 says, And if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed to us. The mansion that God has prepared for you in the city called the New Jerusalem, this city is 1,200 cubic miles. Every person on the planet Earth alive today would have 8,000 square foot on the bottom floor. And if every floor was 24 feet high, there would be 300,000 floors. Plenty of room. Plenty of room. Your excitement and your learning will never crest. There will never be a moment when your capacity to learn gets fatigued like you are now. Your involvement as a co-designer and developer with the father of the cosmos will spark holy imagination and inflame passionate involvement with an ever-escalating sense of fulfillment. 2 Timothy 2 says it's a faithful saying For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Our opportunity to rule with him over cities and commerce of a sinless cosmos defiles our wildest imaginations. Our relationship with all people will be one of endless admiration and eternal connectedness. You'll pick up joyful conversations with millions of believers at the deepest levels of heart intimacy. Probably brothers who could, not, could hardly look at each other here on earth will joyfully be laughing, holding each other, hugging each other in hours of discussion and fellowship. First Peter, again, talks about the trials that precede this. It says, now you can hope for a perfect inheritance beyond the reach of change and decay, reserved in heaven for you. And In the meantime, you're guarded by the power of God, operating through your faith, till you enter fully into the salvation which is all ready for the denouement of the last day. This means tremendous joy for you. I know even though at present you are temporarily harassed by all kinds of trials and temptations, this is no accident. It happens to prove your faith, which is infinitely more valuable than gold. And gold, as you know, even though it's ultimately perishable, must be purified by fire. This proving of your faith is planned as a result in praise, And honor and glory in the day when Jesus Christ reveals himself. And though you've never seen him, yet I know that you love him. And at present you trust him without being able to see him. And even now he brings you a joy that words cannot express. And that has in it a hint of the glories of heaven. And all the time you're receiving the result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Heaven will be a first-class buffet for every sensibility that a sinless body can have. And now it says in 1 Peter 4, And now, dear friends of mine, I beg you not to be unduly alarmed at the fiery ordeals that which come to test your faith, as though this were some abnormal experience. You should be glad because it means that you're called to share Christ's sufferings. One day, when he shows himself in full splendor to men you will be filled with the most tremendous joy. Can we even slightly imagine what it would be like to walk through the parks and gardens of of the New Jerusalem, strolling down golden streets, engaging in fellowship with the redeemed, reading in the celestial libraries, and feasting at the tables of the New Jerusalem with the holy, beautiful bridegroom of perfect character and love? who unveils the mysteries of all the previous, present, and future eternal life. To discover that worshiping the one you're married to brings an ever-rising explosion of joy in your breast. Heaven's greatest attraction will be your husband. And he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That goes to a whole new plateau of anything we've ever known gratification will never end beauty will endlessly increase desire will be overflowingly fulfilled most people know we're going to worship God in heaven but they don't have a clue how thrilling it's going to be it will be worth help me it all When we see Jesus, life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. The race till we see Christ. If we could get one brief keyhole peek of the beauty in Jesus, in his home, in his plans for these eternal escapades, we would look forward to death. We would not fear death. Death would have lost its sting. We would be invincible in persecution as we use weapons that are not carnal, but mighty through God to pulling down the strongholds. Are you ready to lose your life for Christ? Are you ready to be in Jesus' presence when death, because death has lost its sting? Do the teachings of Jesus inflame your heart? So that you will jump into the arena and say, Stop in the name of Jesus. God is calling young people from the conservative Anabaptist church in America to enter the stadium, to jump the wall and get in the fray, to get between the abused and the abuser. We are to storm the gates of hell. Our churches are being called upon to dispatch men and women who will abandon this life because of their focus on the reality of the next life. As Mark Batterson said, Jesus didn't die to keep us safe. He died to make us dangerous. Faithfulness is not holding the fort. It's storming the gates of hell. The will of God is not an insurance plan. It's a daring plan. The complete surrender of your life to the cause of Christ isn't radical, it's normal. It's time to quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. It's time to go all in and all out for the all in all. Pack your coffin. Let's bow our heads in prayer. while our heads are bowed. I know we've talked about something that none of us look forward to in persecution, suffering. But if the cross of Christ is to be preached, it also is more than that. It's calling us to be willing to die upon that cross. I just want to give you opportunity this evening, while the heads are bowed, if God is speaking to you about being willing to get in the fray, to jump over the gate, to give your life in the cause of Christ, I'd like to have you just stand up quietly where you're at to pray with you and pray for you. God bless you. God bless each of you. Father in heaven, you see our hearts tonight. You know us so well. You know what we fear. But Father, we pray that you would use a mighty army with the weapons that you supply to stand between the abused and the abuser, to get in the way of evil. to cry out, stop, in the name of Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd anoint each one of these who stood tonight. Give them your grace for every trial that comes. Lord, we know that you want those who will be willing to invest in your, in your army to stand against evil. Lord, we depend upon you. We know we are not strong enough, but we know that in your grace we can know the victory in each of these battles. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we're going to be around your throne and we're going to be rejoicing, clapping. We're going to be so excited and all this life will vanish away and all the things we thought were so important will just be lost in memory because of the greatness of your presence and what you have in store for every faithful warrior. So, Father, I pray that you would keep that in front of us as we lay our lives down for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. This recording and many others are available from Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. For more information, call 1-814-789-4769 or visit us online at www.christianlearning.org.